In our continuing study through the book of Hebrews, we come this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. You know, one of Satan's primary objectives is to diminish, to detract from, to take our attention away from the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me suggest a simple test to evaluate a teaching or a practice. If it diminishes from the glory of Christ, it is not of God. Now, how does Satan attempt to do this in our lives? Well, sometimes the enemy uses trials to get our focus off of Jesus. Have you noticed this? When we're going through a trial, when we're hurting, we're often looking at ourselves and feeling sorry for ourselves, or we're looking to others to provide the solution, or we're looking for a shortcut to get us out of that situation, rather than allowing that trial to draw us nearer and to give us a clearer vision of the, the one who is sufficient to meet all our needs, Jesus Christ. Sometimes the enemy uses temptations to lure us from Christ. If Satan can get us satisfied with the passing pleasures of this world, then we take our focus off the one who really satisfies, not only today, but forever, Jesus Christ. But you know, we're usually alert to those two areas of attack by the enemy. We understand that trials and temptations are part of his arsenal. But I want to suggest to you this morning that he has a much more formidable attack and one that is much more subtle. And that is that the enemy often uses legalism to divert our attention away from Jesus Christ. If he can get us to focus on rules and outward observances, then what happens? Pretty soon we become self-reliant. Pretty soon we begin to think that we don't really need Jesus. Paul warns us about this in Colossians chapter 2. He tells us that legalism will draw our attention away from the internal and onto the external. It will draw our attention away from the substance and onto the superficial. You can tell you're falling into legalism when you use terms like, he's a good Christian. Ever hear that term? He's a good... Where did that term come from? What is a good Christian and a bad Christian? You see, legalism causes us to rate and evaluate people based on our list of qualifications. Let me just show you a passage that reminds us of this. Look at Philippians chapter 3 just for a moment. Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 to 6, Paul lists all the things that he could boast about. All the things that would make him a good Christian. And then after listing them, he comes to verses 7 and 8 and he says, I take all of these things and I count them as loss. I take all of these good things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Christianity is not about being good. It's about being stripped of everything but Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on in this passage to give us his personal purpose statement in verse 10. He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Now I know most Christians ignore the last half of that verse. We like the first half. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. But what does he go on to say? And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. You see, Paul is telling me that if I want to be like Jesus in His resurrection power, then first I have to be like Jesus in His suffering and death. See, Christianity is not about me being good. Christianity is about me being dead. And that deadness in the context of this passage includes all the things that I can do to be good. 
See, when you say, I'm doing everything in my power to be good, is that godly? No, that's not godly. See, if you're trying to do the best that you can to be good and you happen to be good, who gets the glory? You do. And that flunks the test that I just suggested. If a teaching or activity diminishes the glory of Christ, it is not of God. You see, your fleshly efforts never bring glory to God. In fact, they do just the opposite. They compete with God for His glory. And that's why at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, Paul spells it out this way in verse 3. He says, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in flesh. If we are going to glorify Jesus Christ, how much confidence can we put in the flesh? None. And in the context of this passage, again, he's talking about our fleshly efforts to produce good works. You see, Jesus' glory and my glory are mutually exclusive. In order to give him glory, I must relinquish all of my glory. In order to put my confidence in him, I must put no confidence in me. And I would suggest to you that the subtle way that Satan gets us to reinvest confidence in ourselves is through legalism. He wants us to make a list of rules and regulations that we follow. And when we do that, we focus on the superficial rather than the substance. He wants us to focus on all the rules and the rituals and the religious activities rather than the all-supreme and all-sufficient one, Jesus Christ. See, I would much rather deal with a person who is defeated by temptations or a person who is discouraged by trials than a person who is ingrained in legalism because that is the most threatening attack that Satan has. And the writer of Hebrews understood that. He's writing to a church where Satan is using trials and persecution to tempt them to return to Judaism, to put themselves back under the law, to put themselves back under legalism. And what is the message that he presents in the book of Hebrews? What message is it that counteracts legalism? Well, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. You see, it's either or. It's either legalism or the superiority of Jesus Christ. We don't get both of those. And he continues that theme as we come to chapter 8 of Hebrews by re reinforcing the fact that Jesus is our superior high priest. Notice verse 1. It says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. What's the main point in what he's been saying? We have such a high priest. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament that sometimes small words are used as adjectives to convey incomprehensible truths? John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world. Would you have chosen that? That's a little word. That little word, so, conveys a large message. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Behold what manner of love. I would have probably said, behold what magnanimous, elephantesimal, super incalculable love. But he just says, behold what manner of love. And here in this passage, we have the same concept. He says, he is such a high priest. He is a high priest that can do what no other high priest could ever do. He is a high priest, as he told us at the end of chapter 7, who has made one sacrifice for sins that can take us into the presence of God and secure us there forever. And then he's going to go on in this chapter to develop that theme further. He's going to tell us four ways that Jesus is superior as our, high, as our high priest. And I've listed those four things in your bulletin. The first is his superior seat. Notice verse 1 again. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty 
in the heavens. What is our high priest doing? He is sitting. Now what does that tell you? That tells you his work is done. When a Jew would read this verse, he would automatically say, well, he better stand up. Because Levitical priests never finished their work. They never sat down. There were no chairs in the tabernacle. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But Jesus is superior because His work is done. When He was on the cross, He said, it is finished. And He has sat down. And where is He sitting? Look at the end of verse 1 again. He has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That phrase, the majesty, is a title used of God. It's only used one other place in the Bible, and that was back in, earlier in Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3. He is seated at the right hand of the throne or the majesty of God. Now, I assume God has a big throne because Jesus is sitting on the right hand of it. And the right hand in the Bible always means the place of power and the place of exaltation. Now get the contrast here. The Levitical priest could go into the Holy of Holy Places one time a year. He only stayed in there for a brief moment. He only temporarily stood before the mercy seat, which was the symbol of the throne of God, and then he got out of there. Jesus, our high priest, is sitting forever on the throne of God. This would blow the Jewish mind. But let me show you something else that, that is even more amazing. Look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Revelation 3.21. I'll wait for you to get there. I want you to see this. Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes. Now, who overcomes? Well, 1 John 5.4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So he's talking to those who are born again, those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Whoever is a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is speaking. He says, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. You want an amazing verse? That's an amazing verse. Our high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is on the throne with the Father. And he says to us, because you were born again and you have overcome the world, you are going to sit with me on my throne just as I sit on my Father's throne. That is a superior seat. And then the second point we see in this passage is his superior sanctuary in verses 2 to 5. Notice verse 2. It says he's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched not man. Now, does Jesus serve in the tabernacle in the wilderness? No. Does Jesus serve in the temple in Jerusalem? No. What, what tabernacle does he serve in? Well, it says here he serves in the true tabernacle, the genuine tabernacle. Now, that doesn't mean that the tabernacle in the wilderness wasn't or, or was false. It just means that it was not the genuine. It was not the true one. Who pitched the true one? The Lord. And where did he pitch it? When we get to verse 5, we're going to see that he pitched it in heaven. And that word sanctuary really is an expression of the holy of holy places. It tells us that Jesus is in the inner sanctuary of the true tabernacle of God in heaven. You say, well, what, what is he doing there? Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. What is a high priest appointed to do? He offers gifts and sacrifices. You look at the Old Testament Levitical priests, they offered gifts, meal offerings, first fruits, thanksgiving offerings, dedication offerings, and they offered sacrifices. They killed lambs and goats and bulls and turtle doves, and they offered the blood on the altar to the Lord. 
And he says, so Christ had to do the same. Did Jesus have a sacrifice? Yes. Chapter 7 and verse 27 in the last word says, He offered up Himself. That's the one-time sacrifice. Does Jesus have gifts to offer? Yes, He does. In fact, if you study Scripture, you will find that none of us can really praise God. None of us can really dedicate ourselves to God. None of us can truly worship God or give to God or thank God unless it comes through Jesus Christ. You see, He is our high priest, and everything that we offer to God goes through our high priest. So Jesus offered the one-time sacrifice Himself for sins forever. He is also the one through whom we offer gifts and praise and exaltation to our God. You say, well, why isn't He a high priest in the earthly sanctuary? Two reasons. Number one, He couldn't be, according to verse 4. It says, now if He were on earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He couldn't be a priest in the earthly sanctuary because He wasn't qualified. You go back to the Old Testament, you find that the priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and so he was not qualified on an earthly level. And I also want you to notice something at the end of verse 4. It says, since there are those who offer, that's present tense, the gifts according to the law. That tells us that the writing of the letter of Hebrews preceded 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. Because he says, present tense, they are now offering these sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. So why wasn't he a high priest in the earthly sanctuary? Number one, he couldn't be. And number two, it was just a copy anyway, according to verse 5. Who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. See, they should have known from Exodus 25, where God showed Moses a pattern on the mountain by which he was to build the tabernacle. A pattern of what? a pattern of the genuine tabernacle, which is in heaven. You see, Moses was building the tabernacle according to the specifications of God, and that pattern was taken off the genuine tabernacle, which is the heavenly tabernacle. We were down in Memphis, and they have Mud Island there. It's a man-made island, and on, on Mud Island, they've got a, a replica of a thousand miles of the Mississippi River. It's about five blocks long. If I came home from vacation, you say, well, what would you do on vacation? I said, well, I walked the Mississippi from... Cairo, Illinois, to New Orleans, Louisiana. You would question that situation because, you see, that's just a copy. That's just a replica. The Jews thought they had the real McCoy in the tabernacle in the temple, and the writer here is saying, no, you, you just have the copy. And then he also calls it in this verse a shadow. What is a shadow? A shadow is image without substance. You ever try to touch a shadow, pick up a shadow, hold a shadow? A shadow is image, but it has no substance. A shadow is not real. A shadow simply tells you there is something real that is casting the shadow. And so he says, the tabernacle, the temple, all those things, all those rituals, all the law, that's just a shadow. The substance belongs to Jesus Christ. And so to these Jews, he's saying, why are you clinging to the copy when you can have a genuine? Why are you trying to hold on to the shadow when you can have the real? And so he says of Jesus Christ, he has a superior seat, he has a superior sanctuary, and then thirdly, he has a superior ministry. Look at verse 6. For now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. A more excellent ministry than who? More excellent than the Levitical high priests. Now if you take yourself back in time and just imagine a little bit, it must have been a pretty impressive thing to see the high priest in the splendor of his priestly garments going through all the elaborate rituals at the tabernacle. 
And the worshipers would have a moment of suspense every year on the Day of Atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holy Places. And I imagine they were outside around the tabernacle thinking to themselves, what must it be like in there? I wonder what he's seeing when he goes into the Holy of Holy Places. I wonder what he's doing in there. I wonder if he'll come out alive. And then when he comes out, they all breathe a collective sigh of relief. And the writer is saying that that is nothing compared to our high priest, Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Their yearly ritual was nothing compared to our high priest who offered himself once for all on the cross and is now serving us in heaven. His heavenly ministry is much more excellent than their earthly ministry ever was. You say, wait a minute, Dan, did you just say he is now serving us in heaven? Well, yes, he is. See, that's what ministry means. Ministry means service. In fact, back in verse 2, in case you missed it, it said he is a minister in the sanctuary. That word minister means servant. Jesus is a servant in heaven on our behalf. You see, although Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he is finished in terms of his redemptive work, it is complete. The fact that he is seated does not mean that he is inactive. He is still ministering as our high priest. You say, well, what is Jesus doing? Well, several things. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us he is our mediator between God and man. He is the bridge between us and God. He is, in essence, holding God by one hand and us by the other. He is the mediator between us. He tells us in 1 John 2.1 that Jesus is now our advocate. That word means he's our defense lawyer. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says that the devil accuses us before God day and night. And so Jesus is up all hours defending you and me. And what is the defense? Our keeping of the law? No. Our defense is the cross of Calvary. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says when we draw near to the throne of grace, He gives mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Hebrews 7.25 says He is making intercession for us. He is presently praying for each of us. I love Acts chapter 7. You remember when Stephen was stoned to death? It says in verse 55 that while he was being stoned to death, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You say, well, I thought Jesus was sitting. He is sitting, but when Stephen was being stoned to death, he stood. You say, why did he stand up? I think two reasons. Number one, because Stephen was suffering on his behalf. And number two, because Stephen was about to come home. I like to believe Jesus does that for all of us as well. I like to believe that when we're suffering on his behalf, he gets out of his seat and stands up. And that when we come home to heaven, he stands to welcome us in glory. It's a great picture. You know, it amazes me that Jesus served us in his humiliation on the earth. But it's beyond amazing that Jesus is still serving me in His exaltation in heaven. That is His superior ministry to us as our high priest. And then the fourth thing is His superior covenant. And for that, look at the end of verse 6. It says, By as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now we're going to look at the particulars next week of that covenant. He records it in verses 8-12 to where he quotes from Jeremiah 31. But this morning, I want to simply pick out the three reasons that it gives for the necessity of the new covenant. First reason is the law was not faultless. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. One of the reasons we have a new covenant is because the first one was faultful. It was 
not adequate. You say, well, what was wrong with the law? What was wrong with the first covenant? Well, let me just show you a few things that was wrong with it. And for that, I want you to keep your finger here and go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. There were a lot of things that the law couldn't do. One of them is it, it couldn't justify us. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for, quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then in verse 12, he says, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, quoting from Leviticus 18.4, he says, He who practices them shall live by them. The law cannot justify us. If you want to be justified by the law, all you have to do is keep it perfectly from birth to death, not only externally, but internally. And the problem is that you are defeated before you begin because the Bible says that we are born into sin. I watched the softball team the other day. They, they now, I'm getting old because when I played, you got three strikes. They, they come up to the plate with one strike. Well, spiritually, you come into this world with three strikes. You're already out. So there's really no use to walk to the plate and say, I'll take on the law. I can handle this. You're already out. In Adam, he already failed and we fail with him. You see, the law cannot justify. It cannot acquit us. All it can do is condemn us. And the second problem it has is it can't impart life. In Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 21. Last half of that verse. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. If God could have just written another law that would have given us life, He would have done that. See, the Bible says our problem is that we are dead in our sins. And there is no law that can help us with death. Ever try to prop up a corpse and say, I want you to do a few things for me? It doesn't work. See, the law cannot impart life. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 that the law does just the opposite. Speaking of the law, it says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All that the law can do is kill us. It cannot impart life. And then the third thing it can't do is it can't restrain sin. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 22 says, but the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. You see, the law doesn't put sin under us. The law puts us under sin. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the law doesn't restrain sin at all. In fact, because of the law, sin increases. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says, And the law came in that the, that the transgression might increase. The law is like a big spoon. And what the law does is it stirs up all the sludge in the bottom of our sinful heart. The law says, do this, and we go, well, I never thought about doing that. For instance, let me, let me, let me try on you. I'll give you a law right now, and you see if you can obey it. Do not think about pink elephants. Don't. Stop it. See, there's a law. What does it do? It stirs up rebellion in the heart of man. If you don't believe this, go home today, put a sign in your yard that says, do not throw eggs at my house. Let's see what happens. You see, that law will actually increase sin. The law was not intended to restrain sin. It was intended to stir up sin so that we would recognize our guilt. And then a fourth problem with the law, it can't free us. Look at chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 1. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's referring to the law when he talks about this yoke 
of slavery. It doesn't set us free, it enslaves us. In fact, in Acts 15.10, Peter calls it a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The law does not bring freedom. The law brings slavery. And only Jesus can set us free. And then let me give you one more point. It can't forgive us. And for that, come back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 4. says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law and the Levitical priesthood could never take away sins. In fact, in verse 3 of this chapter, it says it's just a reminder of sins year after year. But Jesus, by His one sacrifice for all time, cleansed us and made us perfect forever. And so the first reason that we need a new covenant was the law was not faultless. And then the second reason we need, need a new covenant back in verse, or chapter 8 is in verse 8. It's because we are not faultless. Look at verse 8. For finding fault with them. Not only was there fault with the law, it wasn't designed to resolve our problem. There's a fault with us. You see, the law did what it was supposed to do. It condemned us. And now because we are condemned, we need a new covenant. We need a new relationship with God. We need one that doesn't depend on us, but depends only on Jesus Christ. And so our fault, our sin, necessitated the new covenant. And then the third reason, the law is obsolete. In verses 8 to 12, the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31. And then he sort of concludes in verse 13. I want you to notice what he says. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, he gives this lengthy quote. And then he really just chooses one phrase that he wants to highlight out of this lengthy quote. And that one phrase is a new covenant. And what he's saying is, when he says a new covenant... He's telling us that the Old Covenant is obsolete. Jeremiah wrote this in 600 B.C. And when he said a new covenant, he was making the first obsolete. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that it was a process. You see, it started becoming obsolete the moment Jeremiah made his promise or his prophecies in 600 B.C. That started the countdown in time when the Old Covenant would disappear. At the cross, it became obsolete. Remember what God did when Jesus was on the cross? He took the veil and He tore it from the top to the bottom in the temple. He was saying that this old system is obsolete. And then it disappeared in 70 AD. You know, when this letter was written, as I said earlier, the covenant was still governing the nation of Israel. The temple was still standing. The priests were still offering their daily sacrifices. And I'm sure that devout Jews thought that their Christian friends were foolish to abandon such a solid religion to go after this seemingly intangible faith. But what they didn't realize was that their, quote, solid religion had grown old and was about to vanish away. In 70 AD, the Romans under Titus came into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And the Jews have not had a temple. They have not had a priesthood. They have not had a sacrifice ever since. And the new covenant, in contrast, brings eternal blessings. In fact, the Greek word here for new does not mean new in time. It means new in quality. The new covenant is of such quality that it will never grow old, it will never be replaced, it will never disappear. Now we're going to take the time to look at the details of this new covenant next week. We're going to talk about what he says in verse 6 when he calls it better promises. But in closing this morning, I just want to give you some applications for the passage that we've looked at. Three applications. Number one, let Jesus serve you. Let Jesus serve you. You know our tendency is to put the emphasis on serving Jesus. And there's a place for that. That's our calling. 
But there is also a place for us to pause from our busy activities and allow Jesus to serve us. This passage tells us that he is presently serving us at the right hand of the majesty on high. How has he served you lately? In fact, as you view your situation today, I think some of you are going through some difficult situations, and I just imagine that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, reaching out to you, and you may be ignoring him today. He's trying to minister grace to you, and, and you're still trying to struggle and, and solve that problem yourself, and he's already standing up with all the answers that you need. Remember when Jesus came around the table in the Last Supper and he washed the disciples' feet, and he got to Peter? What did Peter say? You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. See, it's part of our relationship for Jesus to serve me as well as me serve Jesus. What was Peter doing? He had his feet thrown up like this. And, and we're that way. we got a need and we're like this. And he's saying, you've got to extend your feet and let me wash your feet. You've got to let me serve you. You see, there's a sense in which Jesus cannot serve us unless we surrender to him on you. And some of us need to evaluate our lives today and see if we aren't laying in the fetal position, drawing up our feet and not letting Jesus really minister to us as he desires to minister to us today. Christian life is not all about us serving him. It's about Jesus serving us. Would you let him serve you today? Would you take the time and say, Lord, I need you to minister to me before I start ministering to you? Second application. Look to the things above. We discover in this passage that the earthly tabernacle was not the real thing. The real tabernacle is in heaven where Jesus is seated on our behalf. And I think we're prone to think that the earthly is the real because we can see it. And the heavenly is kind of unreal because we can't experience it with our senses. Well, the Bible tells us that we've got it reversed. Paul said in Colossians 3.1, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. You see, the earthly is the shadow. The heavenly is the real. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18 that we as Christians look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Where is your focus today? What are you looking at? Are you looking at the physical Temporal, shadow, copy? Or are you through the eyes of faith looking at the eternal and the real? How do we cultivate that kind of vision? In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What's the mirror? It's the Word of God. We come to the Word of God and through the Word of God we see the glory of Jesus Christ and that's back to the theme of the book of Hebrews. We see Him as who He really is. You know, I came across an interesting verse this week. I want to share it with you in closing. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I had, noticed, I had noticed this before, but it really hit me this week. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. He's saying earlier about the fact that he's coming back. And this verse describes that, but notice what it says. It says, when he comes, Jesus, to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When Jesus comes back, I can guarantee you one thing that you're going to be doing is marveling at Jesus Christ. Now that verse convicted me 
because I had to ask myself, when's the last time that I marveled at Jesus? You see, even the person who knows him the best and has the closest relationship with him, when he comes back, is going to marvel because we didn't know half the story of who he is. And we spend our time looking at all the physical things about us and all the things around us and focused on things that are only temporal when we should be focused on the one who is eternal. And we should be spending our days seeing his glory through the word of God and marveling at all the facets about our Savior. Let Jesus serve you. Look to the things above. One more exhortation, one more application, and that is simple. Let go of legalism. It's obsolete. It has disappeared. You say, well, what do you mean by legalism? Legalism says, God will bless me if I do certain things. That's legalism. Grace says, God has already blessed me because of what Jesus has done for me. Don't try to earn God's blessings. Don't try to add anything to what Jesus has done. Don't try to steal His glory. Give Him all the glory that He deserves. And how much is that? That's all the glory. See, you can't do one thing to make Jesus Christ love you any more than He already does. That's grace. And when we understand that, the only thing that we can do is marvel at Him and worship Him. And we're going to close our service today by doing that. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. And we're going to sing as people who are bowed down.